Welcome to Voices in My Head, the official podcast of me, Rick Lee James. I'm a recording artist, a singer, songwriter, an author, a worship leader, and an ordained minister in the Church of the Nazarene. The Voices in My Head podcast is your source for discussions on music, literature, movies, pop culture, theology, and more. Now sit back, relax, and listen to the latest episode of the Voices in My Head podcast. And don't forget to let the voices in your head be heard by following me on Twitter at Rick Lee James and sharing your thoughts about today's show. Voices in My Head podcast. This is your host, Rick Lee James, as always, and I'm very glad you could be here with me again. This is episode number 163 of Voices in My Head. I'm sorry, I, I feel like every time I come on this show anymore, I'm apologizing that it's been like a matter of weeks since I last podcasted. Uh, there's a couple of reasons for that. One is I've been incredibly busy. The other is I'm having some computer difficulties, and even as you may be able to tell in the audio quality right now, I'm recording this on a handheld audio recorder because my computer is giving me fits right now. So I'm trying to get that problem fixed so that I can bring you another podcast. But in the meantime, uh, we're going to do it kind of the old-fashioned way here with a handheld recorder. This is going to be a, hopefully an interesting episode for you, at least those of you who are kind of theology and worship nerds like me, I'm going to be talking about the Eucharist, or as you may call it in your church, uh, communion. Uh, we're going to be looking at uh, some different aspects of it, but I especially want to look at it from the aspect of the tradition that I come from, uh, which is a, a very Wesleyan-based tradition. Uh, we consider John Wesley, Charles Wesley, we consider ourselves in line with that, and uh, the Anglicanism that they came from, and really, which is Catholicism, and back to the ancient church in many ways. So today's going to be a special episode. I've been doing some seminars around the country whenever I travel, and, and one of the workshops I've been doing is the Eucharist as Invitation. Uh, I've done a lot of research into it, and uh, this is actually in preparation for a new book that's going to be coming out that I'm doing in collaboration with some other writers where we are going to be focusing on what worship means um, specifically for the Church of the Nazarene, the denomination that I'm a part of. So this is sort of a, a test run in some ways, and uh, a little bit of what I've been doing is I've been traveling and doing workshops, and people have asked if I could do uh, something like this on the podcast, so I'm going to do that today. Um, so anyway, I have been incredibly busy, just to give you a quick update on the album, and then we're going to get right into this uh, project. The album did release on St. Patrick's Day, March 17th, just a little over a month ago now, and the response has been wonderful. I want to thank you all who have bought the album and who have been sharing it with your friends, telling other people about it. Uh, it has been uh, so encouraging for me to get to hear responses from you. I do want to encourage you, just like I always do uh, with the podcast, if you could go to iTunes and leave a review for the album, if you have been enjoying that, it would mean a lot to me. The more reviews we get, the more five stars we get, just like on the podcast, uh, the more visibility we have in the world of iTunes. And so when people come uh, to look for a specific genre of music, they're more likely to show up in that genre. So uh, let me start by saying thank you. Let me also say a couple other things. Um, on the 27th of May, I know it's a little bit out there from now, but I'm going to be having a release party. And, and you're saying, what? Your album came out in March. Well, yeah, I know it came out in March, uh, but I wanted to have plenty of time to get this organized, get it together. And for those of you that may live out of state, uh, I wanted to give you a chance to uh, be able to come 
join us if you can uh, at a store here in Springfield, Ohio, the city where I live. Um, there's a store called Beacon of Hope, and it's got a coffee shop in it and a great area for concerts. I've done many concerts there uh, throughout the past couple of years. And I'm so excited to be partnering with Beacon of Hope store. Uh, we're going to have this release party in there. I'm going to be playing through the entire album, Hymns, Prayers, and Invitations, live that night in the store. I'm um, hoping you can sing along with it. And uh, the good news is uh, about the location where it is here in Springfield, Ohio. There are hotels literally walking distance away from where I'm going to be playing. So if you're coming from out of state, um, I, which I welcome you, please try to join us on May 27th. There's an event page on Facebook. It's starting to fill up with people. Um, I'd love to have you come and be a part of this, especially if you have been a supporter. If you did a pre-order of the album or uh, did things on GoFundMe, I really uh, welcome you. I'd love to have you come and celebrate with me that night, the release of the album. Uh, in relation to that, uh, very exciting news uh, in May in the May and June issues of both CCM magazine and Worship Leader magazine. Uh, the album is going to be featured and reviewed, so I'm I'm really thrilled about that. I'm nervous about it. I hope it gets a good review, um, but I'm just excited to even be able to have uh, the ear of the people at CCM and Worship Leader Magazine, um, and that people are going to be discussing that. And uh, the other good news about that is it looks like that issue of Worship Leader Magazine is going to be passed out to everyone who attends the uh, National Worship Leader Conferences around the country. So uh, lots of good news going on, and it looks like the CCM magazine is going to be handed out at uh, the Worship Life Conference uh, in Gatlinburg, which I am planning on being at. I'm actually a sponsor for that this summer in June in Gatlinburg. Maybe you can join us. Uh, and uh, also it's going to be handed out at the Immerse Conference in Nashville that the GMA puts on every year. So big news uh, with the CCM issue and the Worship Leader magazine issue. Uh, all right, well, enough about the album. I've already burned up about five minutes just talking about other things. Let me get into the conversation today and the topic at hand. Um, the Eucharist as Invitation is uh, is what I'm going to be titling uh, this uh, podcast today. And uh, I'm going to be reading a lot of my research. I'm going to be talking about some different things, and maybe we can have a dialogue. Hopefully you can write in or or. Uh, call in to the show. I believe there's information on rickleyjames.com about how you can call in. But here I go. Uh, I'm going to be talking about the history of communion, what makes us Christians, some different aspects of Christian worship, and what makes Christian worship Christian. Uh, there really are some things that make us Christian uh, versus just any other religion that's out there. So here we go. Six and a half minutes in. I am ready to start this. Well, in the not-too-distant past, family mealtime was considered a tradition. It was a place carved out in the day where the family would gather together as a unit. A proper family meal was one that was prepared at home, and fast food was reserved more for special occasions than as regular fare. The meal itself required an effort to create. It took time to consume it together. Conversation would happen at these times around the table, and food was consumed Siblings would squabble, laughs would be shared, arguments would begin, family time would happen, and for better or worse, memories were made around the table. If the stats are to be believed, families are still eating together, but our table customs have changed. 
Families aren't doing the same things they always did while gathering around the table. Where dinnertime used to be a place of conversation and sharing, now times around the table are often filled, uh, filled with distraction. Television, email, texting, and all the multitasking that have arrived in the age of smartphones have invaded mealtime in a big way. Our table etiquette and the frequency of our mealtime gatherings has changed, and many would say that the once sacred family mealtime has suffered for it. With that being said, the statistics that show uh, that over 40% of families are still gathering together at mealtime. So people are still gathering, even though it's about 40%. That actually seems high. I'm surprised that families are still doing that, but they are. The table has always been a defining part of worship in the Christian faith. Always until recently, that is. After all, Christians are all part of the same family where God the Father is the head of the household. Like any other healthy family unit, the family of God gathers at the table for a meal. The sacrament of communion, or Eucharist as we call it, has roots that can be traced all the way back to the first century Judaism, before Christianity became a religion to itself. Because of its liturgical diversity, there is simply not just one New Testament view of Christian worship in the early church. The Spirit manifested itself in a variety of ways, such as preaching, prophecy, speaking in tongues, baptism, and intercessory prayer. However, on the basis of New Testament research, we can assume that the primary context for how these various acts of worship came together was the weekly gathering on Sunday evening. See, before Christianity became a religion to itself, it was part of a renewal movement within first century Judaism. Jesus was Jewish. The disciples were Jewish. The first believers were all Jewish. Christianity at first operated inside Judaism as a sect of the Jewish faith. Now let me explain that. Just as the Pharisees were a sect of and the Sadducees were a sect, Christianity was simply another sect within Judaism. Significantly for our denomination, if you're a part of the Nazarene church like me, um, the Christian sect was known as the sect of the Nazarenes. It was in the Gentile city of Antioch where the sect of Nazarenes were first called Christians. We read about this in the book of Acts. For at least Christianity's first decade, Christians remained an exclusively Jewish movement, with no thought of giving up their identity as Jews. As hard as it may be for us to understand in our context today, the teachings of Jesus and the teachings of Judaism were not incongruent. The Christians simply followed the teachings of the Jewish rabbi Jesus, while the Pharisees, Sadducees, and other sects had their own rabbis who helped them interpret the law and the prophets. The Jewish disciples of Rabbi Jesus, after his ascension, continued to gather in the synagogues for teaching, as well as to worship, to evangelize, and to celebrate holy days. There was, however, one distinct act of worship that the apostles and early followers did not practice at the temple or in the synagogue, and this was the celebration of the Eucharist. The Eucharist, what we often call communion, is a word that means thanks. The Eucharist is the great Thanksgiving meal that Jesus commanded his followers to do in remembrance of him. In a real sense, we can see in this meal how Jesus wanted to be remembered. 
as the host of a meal, where the sacrifice of a new covenant is offered in the breaking of the bread. Jesus didn't command us to remember him in songs, sermons, offerings, or in pastoral prayer times. He commanded us to remember him with a meal, where he was the host. At the end of each Sabbath day, it was the custom of Jews to meet together for an evening meal. It was during these Sabbath evening meals where Eucharist was first celebrated in the homes of Jews who followed the teachings of Rabbi Jesus. The Eucharist itself resembles a weekly fellowship meal called Shabura, which Jesus and his disciples had most certainly shared together because they were Jews, and that's what Jews did. The Passover in the upper room at the Last Supper meal was likely one of these Chabura meals. Chaburas included a blessing with the bread and wine, some fairly formal ritual washings, and prayers with some scripted parts that were recited together by those at the table. The sequence of Passover meal prayers corresponds closely to the order of the earliest Eucharistic prayers. The meal would begin with the gathered believers recounting circumstances of a dire situation that had threatened them, and it continued by describing the merciful action of God that had saved them. The offering at this meal was called the Todah, a word which means thank offering. The Todah, a non-bloody sacrifice, consisted of wine and unleavened bread, and it was offered in the meal by a person who had been delivered from a dangerous situation. In thanksgiving, those who gathered together expressed confidence in God's almighty power and abundant mercy. There are varying accounts of this ritual by the earliest followers of Jesus, but at some point in this offering, they enacted the do this that Jesus commanded them to do in memory of him. Somewhere in the span of the first through third centuries, the majority of Christian converts began coming from Gentiles rather than Jews. These Gentile Christians were known by the name God-fearers. These God-fearers attended the Jewish synagogues and studied the Torah along with the Jewish believers. They were religiously Jewish but had not been circumcised or otherwise initiated as Jews. Jews and Christians competed with each other in making converts from this group of Gentile God-fearers. They all used the synagogue on the Sabbath. Now, it isn't clear exactly when the transfer from meeting for worship on the Sabbath to meeting for worship on Sunday took place or even why, but it is clear that there was a growing need to draw a distinction between the Christian Jewish sects and the non-Christian Jewish sects. The move to Sunday may have been an attempt on the part of Christian Jews with pressure from the non-Christian Jews to make a distinction between the Jews who were followers of the Rabbi Jesus and those who were not. By the start of the second century, scripture reading and teaching were joined with the Eucharist into one service held on Sunday mornings. For Christians, Sunday was now called the Lord's Day, since the Lord Jesus had risen from the grave on Sunday. Christians still worshipped in the style and structure of traditional Judaism with one main difference, the Eucharist as the climax of worship. It is the Eucharist that made Christian worship distinctly Christian set it apart from other faiths. The Eucharist was a communal meal where Christ was the unity, the center, the host, the sacrifice, and the climax of the service. The Eucharist was considered the salvific moment and came to be the essential element of Christian worship. 
It was a moment when the body of the risen Christ became present in the body and blood of believers who gathered together to receive. As the elements were consumed, Christ was present through the Holy Spirit, transforming individuals into one united body of Christ. Most scholars believe that the in the very beginning of the church that Christians actually celebrated a full common meal together called the agape or love feast. You can see 1 Corinthians 11 for this if you're interested. Eucharistia or thanksgiving, prayers of blessing uh, pattered after Sorry, let me say that again. Eucharistia <clears throat> I can't speak tonight. Eucharistia, thanksgiving, prayers of blessing, patterned after the Jewish table blessings, were prayed before the meal with a sevenfold pattern based on sacred Jewish meals. The sevenfold pattern was this. First, there was the taking of the bread. Second, thanking God. Third, breaking the bread. Fourth, giving the bread. Fifth, taking the wine after the meal. Sixth, thanking God. Seventh, giving the wine. And then, most likely due to the logistical problem of accommodating larger crowds as Christianity grew, the full agape meal was eventually dropped from the regular service, leaving the opening and closing table ceremony, which became known as the Eucharist. The basic order of Christian worship, word and table, is evident from the very start of Christian worship as an outgrowth of traditional Jewish worship in the temple, in the synagogue, and in the home. As the church entered into the 3rd century, the full meal with its sevenfold pattern was abbreviated into the four-action pattern which we are most familiar with today. The first being taking the bread and wine, the second being thanking God over the bread and the wine, the third breaking the bread, and the fourth giving the bread and the wine. Even though the Lord's Supper became separated from the full agape meal that we see in 1 Corinthians 11, in some Christian communities, the full meal is believed to have continued for some time. It's likely that the communities who kept the full meal intact did so not just as a way to create fellowship among believers, but as an opportunity to care for the poor and to evangelize. The Eucharist was a way of calling the disenfranchised and those without a family to come and be and find not only a family, but eternal life. Now, let me share with you teaching on the Eucharist from the Didache. Uh, the Didache, by the way, is a non-canonical book, meaning it's not in the Bible. It's believed to have been written between A.D. 70 and A.D. 100. It is claimed to be the work of the Twelve Apostles. The Didache seems to have been a sort of church manual for primitive Christians, probably in rural areas, depending on mostly on the itinerant ministers there. This is what it says concerning the Eucharist in the Didache. But concerning the Eucharist, after this fashion, give ye thanks. First concerning the cup, we thank thee, our Father, for the holy vine, David thy son, which thou hast made known unto us through Jesus Christ thy son. To thee be glory forever. And concerning the broken bread, we thank thee, our Father, for the life and knowledge which thou hast made known unto us through Jesus thy son. To thee be the glory forever. As this broken bread was once scattered on the mountains, and after it had been brought together became one, so may thy church be gathered together from the ends of the earth unto the kingdom. For thine is the glory and the power through Jesus Christ forever. 
And let none eat or drink of your Eucharist, but such as have been baptized into the name of the Lord. For of a truth the Lord hath said concerning this, Give not that which is holy unto dogs. Well, fast forward with me to the 18th century. The world of Anglican ministers John and Charles Wesley were in the wake of the Protestant Reformation, counter-reformations, rationalism, the New World, America, by the way, that's what the New World is, and other European developments, the sacramental system of the church had been broken. Most Protestants contended that the Lord's Supper had some value, but that the Holy Spirit now used other means to accomplish its purposes. For most Protestants, the Lord's Supper, all sacraments really, took a back seat to the Word of God. John Wesley, influenced not only by the Anglican Church with its prayer books and high churchmanship, but also the Moravians with their emphasis on deep experiential piety, found his heart strangely warmed in May of 1738 while attending a meeting of a religious society on Aldersgate Street in London. This experience of heartwarming changed John and his ministry, just as it had changed his brother Charles days before. John and Charles preaching found new life, bringing a joyful evangelistic message or personal of personal experience of God's love. Their newfound enthusiasm was not warmly received by their fellow ministers, and they were forced to do most of their preaching in small societies and in open fields around London. I find it curious, because it still seems like today, any time God does something new in a person's life, that the ministers are always the first ones to be skeptical of it. Speaking as a minister myself. Well, the Wesleys outdid their contemporaries in a huge way when it came to the frequency of the Eucharist. The Eucharist was rarely celebrated in most Anglican churches of that day. John Wesley urged his Methodists to receive communion frequently, and he himself received it twice a week on average. He saw the Eucharist as an evangelistic tool, seeing it as a justifying and sanctifying ordinance of God. His belief was that individuals may be converted to true faith in the very act of participating in communion, and all earnest seekers were welcome at the table. Now, where the Didache said only baptized believers were to be coming at the table, it's very interesting the distinction Wesley makes about earnest seekers. You had to be someone who was really seeking to become a part of this new community, almost to the point that you were planning on being baptized and becoming a follower. But Wesley believed so strongly in the table and so strongly in what Christ did there that he believed the table could be a place of conversion. And I think that's something that makes us, our tradition, if you're from the Wesleyan tradition, something very unique among the other uh, traditions that are out there. Now, a quote from Wesley himself. This is a long quote, but it's good, so I'm going to read it all. It comes from the sermons of John Wesley, Sermon 101. Wesley says this, But it is strange that it, the Eucharist, should be neglected by any that do fear God and desire to save their souls, and yet nothing is more common. One reason why many neglect it is they are so much afraid of eating and drinking unworthily that they never think how much greater the danger is when they do not eat or drink it at all. I am to show that it is the duty of every Christian to receive the Lord's Supper 
as often as he can. The first reason why it is the duty of every Christian so to do is because it is a plain command of Christ. That this is his command appears from the words of the text, Do this in remembrance of me. A second reason why every Christian should do this as often as he or she can is because the benefits of doing it are so great to all that do it in obedience to him. The forgiveness of our past sins and the present strengthening and refreshing of our souls. The grace of God given herein confirms to us the pardon of our sins by enabling us to leave them. As our bodies are strengthened by bread and wine, so are souls by these tokens of the body and blood of Christ. This is the food of our souls. This gives strength to perform our duty and leads us on to perfection. Let everyone, therefore, who has either any desire to please God or any love of his own soul, obey God and consult the good of his own soul by communing every time he can. For like the first century, like first cent, <clears throat> excuse me, like the first Christians, with whom the Christian sacrifice was a constant part of the Lord's day service, and for several centuries they received it almost every day. Four times a week, always, and every saint's day besides. Accordingly, those that joined in the prayers of the faithful never failed to partake of the blessed sacrament. Those are the words of John Wesley. Well, like our founders, the Wesleys, I believe that we can recapture the Eucharist in our tradition as a way of bringing hope, meeting needs, and enacting Sabbath through our worship times by helping our people see Jesus once again as the host of the great Thanksgiving meal. Theologian Walter Brueggemann says of the Eucharist in his book, Sabbath as Resistance, I have come to think that the moment of giving the bread of Eucharist as gift is the quintessential center of the notion of Sabbath rest in Christian tradition. It is gift. We receive in gratitude. Imagine having a sacrament named thanks. We are on the receiving end. Without accomplishment, achievement, or qualification, it is a gift, and we are grateful that moment of gift is a peaceable alternative that many who are weary and heavy laden, cumbered with a load of care, receive gladly. The offer of free gift, faithful to Judaism, might let us learn enough to halt the dramatic anti-neighborliness to which our society is madly and uncritically committed. Walter Brueggemann I can't imagine a better way of countering the anti-neighborliness of this world than by inviting all to the table of the Lord. It's a call to the world to lay down their phones, turn off their TVs, shut out the noise, and come to the table to learn new table manners. Jesus is the host, calling us here to this meal where all who are willing to encounter the risen Christ may come. To the children down the street who have no family to speak of, to the widower who receives each meal alone, come to the table. Find a family here. Know that you are loved. Join this feast where you are loved. I personally will rarely give an altar call anymore unless the sacrament of communion is included in the invitation. I think it's the responsibility and the joy of Christ's followers to extend an invitation to the feast. 
to teach new table manners to a world that has forgotten how to eat together properly. The invitation is to every daughter, every son, every tribe, and every tongue. This is the call, the heart of love. This table is an invitation to be a part of the body of Christ. I want to close this time by using an invitation prayer that I often use at the communion table. Once the elements have been consecrated, I will usually say something like this. This is the table not of the church, but of the Lord. It is to be made ready for those who love Him and want to love Him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little, you who have been here often and you who have not been here for a very long time, you who have tried to follow and you who have failed, come, not because it is I who invite you, it is our Lord. It is His will that those who want Him should meet Him here. And that is from the Holy Communion Liturgy B in the We Book of Worship, in the We Worship Book. Well, I hope you've enjoyed uh, this talk on the Eucharist as invitation. Uh, one question that I've received from people when I give this talk when I'm traveling around um, the country, uh, people usually ask the question, one, if the Didache, the teaching of the disciples, the earliest that we have, says if you are not baptized, you're not allowed to take part in the communion service, uh, why would Wesley and why would you think it's okay to offer it to people who are not baptized? Well, I do want to make it clear that I do believe that the communion table is for believers. It is for those, uh, and Wesley even called it the sustaining meal of the believer. It is a meal for believers. It is not for those who don't believe in Christ. But one thing that I think is different about our time than was uh, true of where the disciples were at was for the disciples, worship was Jewish. The only thing, and I mean the only thing, that distinguished it from Jewish worship and made it Christian was the table. And it was in the times that they had the table that they would dismiss people who were not followers of Christ from that part of the service. That those who were curious about the religion and they were curious about Judy, um, about Christianity who were part of the Jewish sect or those who were Gentiles, they were dismissed from the service because this was the meal of the believers. Well, unfortunately with Protestantism, a lot of Protestantism has, has not uh, held on to the sacrament of baptism. The sacrament of baptism was the mark that you were a Christian. If you were a Christian, you were baptized. I still believe strongly in that. Um, and so if you were a baptized believer, it meant that you had said, I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back. And essentially, when I'm offering the table, um, a lot of traditions I'm in, they don't have baptism anymore, it seems like. Uh, they should, but they don't always. If I leave the Nazarene denomination and I'm speaking somewhere else, especially maybe in that tradition, they don't baptize anymore. Uh, if you think of the Anabaptist tradition, um, if I'm to offer something like the Lord's table and they don't have baptism as a sacrament, but what if these people are still saying in this meal, I am receiving Jesus. I want to take it inside of me. Um, I literally am, am, am taking a, a physical gesture 
um, as a way of saying, I receive Jesus, um, then that's what I try to explain to them the table is. I tell them not to take it lightly. I tell them if they are seeking to become a follower of Jesus, um, this is an action that can be a part of it. Um, I don't think that for us today, uh, the table is the only Christian act. Back when the, the disciples wrote the Didache, um, or the people who wrote it in their name wrote it, it was the only thing that made Christian worship Christian. It was the only thing that was non-Jewish about it. Um, it's still in our church today, um, any, any, any Christian service, and I strongly believe this, any Christian worship service without communion in the service is not a complete worship service. I'm not saying it's not Christian. The church I go to, we don't receive it every week. I wish we did, but we don't. Um, but that's okay. It doesn't mean that I have to leave the fellowship. It's just my personal belief as someone who studied church history. Um, I believe that Christian worship is not complete without the table. It should be the climax of the service. It is the part of the service where we believe we are truly gathering together and receiving Jesus. It is the salvific moment. Um, I'm very much in line with John and Charles Wesley on that. So that's one thing that, that I get asked about. Um, but I really do want to express that this is not just for casual seekers either. Um, I do want to, people to understand that this is the meal of the believer. So if you are going to receive it today, if you are seeking, um, I want you to, to be aware that what you're doing when you come to receive this is I want to be a part of this fellowship with Jesus. It's not just a willy-nilly thing. But I'd rather offer the invitation and allow Jesus to sort it out. I can't tell people's hearts when they come in. Frankly, there's a lot of visitors. If I'm traveling, I, I know very few people whenever I'm presenting communion to the congregation. So I kind of want to leave it up to people's hearts and minds and allow God to sort that out. I can't tell who their hearts are. I can't tell what tradition they're from or if they're Christian. But I can offer them Jesus. And any person who wants to come and receive Jesus, uh, well, he's the one hosting this table and I have to consider that Jesus even offered the table to Judas, and he knew Judas was going to betray him. So what does that say about us if we don't offer that chance to come to Jesus to everyone there? Well, anyway, uh, this podcast has been going on for a while now, about, uh, we're nearing 40 minutes, I guess, at this point. Um, I'm going to be editing it a little bit, so probably a little less than that. Uh, but I'd love to get your feedback. I'd love to have a conversation about the Eucharist. Uh, maybe I can get a few guests on here again. I'd actually love to uh, make a trip to visit my friend Walter Brueggemann again and maybe have a conversation with him about it in the near future. But I did want to get this podcast out. Um, thank you for listening to Voices in My Head. Please go to rickleyjames.com. Leave me some feedback. I'd love to hear from you. Um, if you want to send me a voicemail, you can record a message and send it to rick at rickleyjames.com. Or if you can send me an email, send it to rick at rickleyjames.com. Or you can message me on Twitter. You can find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash rickleyjames. Thank you so much for listening to Voices in My Head. I hope you guys have an incredible day. God bless you. Thank you for joining me here this week on the Voices in My Head podcast. I hope you'll visit me on my website at rickleyjames.com. Follow me on Twitter at rickleyjames. Like my artist page on Facebook at facebook.com slash rickleyjames. And keep up to date on what I'm writing at my author page on amazon.com. 
Make sure to follow my calendar on the website, and if you would like to have me come to your town to do a concert, a speaking engagement, or a book event, you can book me through my website by clicking on the link for Pair Booking Agency. That's P-A-R-E Booking. And finally, it would mean the world to me if you were to leave me a review of this podcast on iTunes. The more positive reviews that we receive, the more visible this podcast is on the internet. And now the benediction. May the God of peace, who raised Christ from the dead, strengthen your inner being for every good work. And may the blessing of God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, rest upon you and dwell within you this day and forevermore. Amen.